1: have accessed entry 798.pr2303. Certificate number 24537. Modernist cuisine. In addition to cutaways, we also explain physics. This is Fourier's law of heat conduction. It's a partial differential equation.
0: We have the only cookbook in the world that has partial differential equations in it. But to make them palatable, we cut it out of a steel plate and put it in front of a fire and photographed it like this. Hominids of our era needed caloric intake to live. Present. Last, uh, yeah, last 12,000 years post-agriculture.
1: Wait, We've had... are you saying hominids pre-agriculture didn't need
0: caloric intake? That is correct. They intake? just got everything from the sun and the air like uh, orchids. They, they wafted above the plains. Although I do think, I have been reading about hunter-gatherer life. Sure. And, and it seems like it was pretty good. Like, the, I guess the new anthropological take is the agricultural revolution was a huge mistake. I heard that hunter-gatherers only worked like four hours a day. Yeah, that's what they say, four to six hours a day. And then once they became slaves to the wheat or the potato, they just became like this endless treadmill of, okay, no, next year's the year the harvest will actually make us prosperous. Slaves to the wheat, that's me. And it just happened so slowly that nobody was ever like look what if we just went back to looking for rabbits and uh and and berries and wild onions
1: well no that's interesting uh, because I was my daughter and I were out for a walk the other day and I said let's imagine that you and I suddenly needed to hunt for our food what's the first thing we would do and so we started to walk through the woods and we were playing this game like no, oh, you weren't gonna like loot a neighbor's kitchen no no we weren't we weren't doing the uh the we weren't gonna steal what, an airplane what if the zombies were here <laughs> no but like you know how would we hunt and she said well you know we would we would throw a rock and i was like okay how far can you throw a rock where it would where it would reasonably hurt something or kill it and we both threw a rock and didn't seem like that was gonna be much of a strategy well you know, they are there rabbits all over here so there you can, are you can get a sense of how fast they move and And I was like, what if it was a deer? Like, how would we, she was like, bow and arrow. I said, okay, how would we build a bow and arrow? So we worked on it all afternoon and we came to the conclusion that it was going to be really, this was the point of the exercise. It was going to be really hard if we (laughs) had to kill our own food. It's important to teach your kids that foraging doesn't work. Well, or just like, listen, this is always right on the other side of of possible that we're going to have to be out here eating moss off the off the north side of the trees
0: you gotta build snares you guys didn't build any snares well so snares sure you gotta but i couldn't do
1: it don't get me wrong i've i've done a study of snares and i still don't fully understand how i mean maybe dig a pit and put a put a bunch of spiky sticks at the bottom so the Viet (laughs) Cong did (laughs) anyway yeah but but they always seemed hungry you're, you're telling me that that hunting squirrels and rabbits is actually
0: pretty efficient and not uh and it, Appar- Apparently, it was great. It was resistant to you know crops are, especially when you have a single staple are very uh, susceptible to one bad event, one bad weather season. Whereas a more diverse crop is, or a more diverse food set, is better for your body, more resistant to drama and disaster, easier to maintain in winter. I'm guessing because yeah. there's always aminols. Yep. But now we are on the uh, the luxury treadmill of the agricultural revolution. Oh my god. I which means so we just want better and better and our bodies have not evolved for this um, more and more delicious food, which is um, which is why I've got this little guy. No, can people hear me patting my my little guy here? They can. But you're I, staying fit. You can imagine. I've got a big guy. I got to I went to a trainer. I'm trying to I'm trying to get rid of my guy. I'm carrying around an 8-year-old of extra I'm trying to imagine poundage. where that would like where would the head even be it's like yeah, I mean, is the
1: eight year old kind of wrapped around your torso yeah, it's an eight year old that's that's sort of been molecularized and distributed equally, equally from ankles to ears that was nice of of him or her, yeah, you know people make sacrifices when I saw that you were doing modernist cuisine, uh I just naturally recoiled because I know that you are a foodie and interested in it. But as I looked at it, modernist cuisine, I was like, where
0: is spaghetti with meat sauce in that? I'm betting it's pretty buried. Are there going to be scrambled eggs and three sausage patties here? Or are there not? And I bet not.
1: I bet not. I had scrambled eggs and bacon yesterday and the cook put some cherry tomatoes under it. Like surprise cherry tomatoes. Did you throw it to the floor? No, but I wasn't expecting, you know, you're cutting into your eggs on
0: toast and it's like, whoa, there's a cherry tomato under here. Where did that come from? It was good though. Well, the ethos of innovation and surprise is very much at the heart of today's entry and it does not end with a, a cherry tomato lurking beneath mm. your omelet, I'm afraid. Yeah, uh, That's that's just the tip of the iceberg lettuce, if you will. Uh, this was re- this uh, topic was requested by a Patreon supporter named Aaron and I'm... After I was about an hour into preparing this show, I realized I don't know if he meant modernist cuisine, the uh, style, or modernist cuisine. The indie rock band. (laughs) (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) modernist cuisine, the book, the the enormous, the enormous book. So we're going to cover both. So it's Aaron with an A. It two, two A's. A's. Yeah. Well, it does have an A. But then, in a shocking twist that, that a modernist cuisine chef would love, boing, boing, boing. there's a second A. Whoa. There's a cherry tomato
1: of an A lurking before the R. Why does it need that second A? Have you ever thought about that?
0: It's in the Bible, so it must be correct.
1: But in the Bible, there are no vowels.
0: <laughs> well, that in would, be, that would be very hard vowel, to read. Vowel. The Lord is my shepherd, <laughs> er shall not want. <laughs> <laughs> the Bible has several vowels. I well, don't want to disabuse you, know, you. Your Bible, maybe. When but... <laughs> Jesus said, "I'm the Alpha and the Omega," nobody was like, "You're the one." I couldn't hear that first part. He's the. F- I'm, the f- I'm the the. F- What's the word that the, the g- that the g- that the uh, the Church of the Subgenius can't see? Oh, uh, well, I can't see. You it can't see it. Well, we'll no. never know. But yeah, it's like the like that. It's yeah. like the vowels in the Bible. Um, so as you've Nord. said, I, uh, I I'm kind of a food. Oh yeah. Nord. Okay, I got it. I mean, or if in the Bible, f- nerd, mm. uh, I do like weird experimental food, just mostly to get me out of the house. Right. Um, I learned during the pandemic that getting fun food in takeout containers was actually and serving it on your dining room table was actually no, no fun at all.
1: Oh, it, it, it cost, I thought you were going to say it was amazing. No, <laughs> I think
0: a lot of people found that. And to me, I was like, wait, this costs the same, but I'm still like looking at my walls. This is a bummer. I feel like the, uh,
1: the things that you like that are weird and experimental and the things that I like that are weird and experimental don't have a ton of overlap. We both like weird experimental things,
0: but but oh, in, different, mean, in different w- w- worlds. You like German post-industrial experimental music. Right. And I want, like Lawrence Welk, whereas... You're eating food with cherry tomatoes on I'm it. I'm out there eating carbonated ham. And I could have chicken fried steak three <laughs> nights a week. Well, have you ever, let me ask you this. Have you ever eaten at one of these places that subscribes to some of the tenets of what is usually called molecular gastronomy? Modern, scientifically informed Innovative cookery.
1: Have we eaten at any of these places? You and me together? together
0: I don't think so. Am I your only lifeline to this world? No, but no, I know you have other
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I have eaten friends. at plenty of like farm to table local places yeah. where it's all based around the idea of how would we survive in winter? We would pickle our food. And I did eat in a I did eat in one Michelin-starred restaurant in France one time, rural France, where I was served a 20-course meal, and mm. everything came out and was some kind of moose on top of a single blade of grass.
0: Moose with a U? Uh, well, yeah, if, if, if it's on a single blade of grass, it's actually smaller than you think. This, it was. This moose. <laughs> it was smaller than
1: I thought. And, and and I was like, how am I going to survive on the... But then it just kept coming, right. one after another. And it was like, I had no idea what any of the food was. It was all very delicious.
0: Well, we've discussed traditional French gastronomy in the Mother Sauces wow, entry. Right, right. And we've talked about the cookbook industry, and sp- particularly the birth of the single modern general reference cookbook when we talked about uh, Irma Rombauer's Joy of Cooking. And I think we even talked a little bit about... 20th century food fads, maybe including molecular gastronomy when we did deep-fried turkeys many a Thanksgiving ago. Because we talked about the blackened Cajun food and the 80s California Nouvelle Cuisine, and I think we talked about some of the molecular gastronomy chefs. Tell me what molecular gastronomy food would even look like, or where in Seattle I would go to find it. Seattle's not a center for it. Mm -mm. I can tell you a story. I mean, let's just... So the Let's annoy people by actually defining the topic before we get into pointless anecdotes. Come on. It's not even 10 minutes into the show. You choose. Do you want pointless anecdote or dictionary definition first? Pointless anecdote. Several years ago, my yes. wife and I were in Chicago. It no, was, no, no, uh, no, no, I had to. We were actually visiting some relatives in Salt Lake, but I had to speak at a thing in Chicago. And Mindy said, oh, let's just leave the kids with my parents, and we'll go out to Chicago and have some good food. Mm-hmm. And we had some, like, traditional... Chicago food. We had hot dogs and pizza and, and all the rest. Hamburger,
1: know. hamburger, and Pepsi, Pepsi.
0: Cured meats of all mm-hmm. kinds. Um, but we also, Mindy had booked us a table at Grant Ackett's restaurant, Alinea, which is really, you know, many of these restaurateurs we're going to talk about in the molecular gastronomy movement are um, are more about picking their spots. Like, ooh, here's, here's one surprising little touch to this dish. Here's a little cherry tomato for you. But Alinea is very much of the more is more oh. side of molecular gastronomy I'm listening dinner is a show it was it was a real experience it was a 17 course meal and every single thing they served clearly had I don't want to say a gimmick because that's a common criticism of this kind of food but it certainly had a deliberate attempt to provoke mm. um, to to surprise the diner uh, was it
1: like butter carved into a big middle finger? <laughs>
0: yeah. That's the Andy Warhol restaurant. <laughs> was, there, was there a cucumber that said critical race theory on it? <laughs> there were definitely culinary equivalents of butter shaped like a middle finger, especially maybe to a homespun Ron Swanson type, such as yourself. The mm-hmm. very first thing they brought us were two, with no explanation, were two blocks of ice um, with a tube-shaped hole and then a glass straw you could insert into the hole and slurp out some kind of butternut squash puree from a block of ice. Um, so this is just a prank. It, the whole thing is a prank. You're going to find out that literally every course, and perhaps the bill, <laughs> was a prank. The, the straw or and or the ice, I'm not sure, are designed such that when you drink your delicious cold squash soup, which couldn't be more than a single sip, right? right? It's a, it's a shot. It's a bit you're taking a shot of squash. If um if that reminds you of your mm-hmm. of your college days and uh, with Squanto in, yeah. in Plymouth Rock, um it was it was designed to make a loud slurp sound that would shock you, make you feel bad about your etiquette, and um, get a giggle from neighboring tables. And we had actually been seated. You know, they seat people in kind of maybe five to ten minute increments, so they're not having to serve everyone the same course at once. And we happened to be the first seating. So at the time, we embarrassingly slurped our squash. No, no other table had experienced it. And every eye in the place was on our us having our little squash milkshake. So you're saying that the ice
1: cube is formed in some way like a gurgle pitcher <laughs> yeah. so that you can't sip it without slurping it.
0: has it. some acoustic trick. It's the ocarina of, uh, of time but full of squash.
1: This is like three pranks in one. Does every one of them have like... It's not just a prank, but then there's a twist to the prank? Basically, yes.
0: And everybody, you know, there's a jacket coat, so everybody there is dressed real nicely, but then, ooh, everything they serve you is going to be crazy and and playful. This next plate smells like farts. There is a lot of multi-sensory stuff. Not farts so much, but, um, you know, then it was just kind of four single bites of fish, but it included weird combinations. Stuff you'd never had before served with another thing you'd never had before. Sea urchin with white chocolate yuzu. Uh, and wasabi um and everybody in the restaurant is getting the same set yes, of it's foods a set, it's a set 17 course menu um i felt kind of lucky that we were getting it first because none of the the stuff was was surprise it was, it was uh oh. we had seen before right. um then there was like uh, some kind of crispy fish skin served in a terrarium with a lime foam pepper well, meant- lime had have you ever had a lime turned into foam I've had foam and I've had lime but yes. well look look what's going on now. How, how, did you eat the terrarium as well? Was it no. like a crunchy terrarium? No, very few things come on plates. I mean, in some cases you do eat the containers, but mostly it's like No now given what we're charging you, we know you've had fish before, but have you ever had it in a terrarium? Did you, know? you eat sushi off of a off of a, a stripper's back? No. Oh. Although there were the main reason is because there were no women in the place. Mindy noticed immediately. <laughs> what we, was that part of the prank? We saw maybe twenty front of house servers, even kitchen staff, all men. And at some point, Mindy asked, "Like, don't any women work here?" And the guy was kind of vague, like, "Yeah, you know, a few. Although, you know, we've we've lost a few. Yeah. Uh, There's the
1: one. Traditionally,
0: no, she's gone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, traditionally." It's a hard field for women to break into. And I think there are many barriers to entry with um, the kind of behavior you see from egotistical chefs. I'm not saying anything about this particular. Well, now place, tell me, because but, it seems
1: like food service is an easy place for women to break up into up to a point. And where is that break? I think point? it was
0: very similar to the thing we we're always talking about with computer punch card programmers, where as soon as there was prestige to it, I see. then these celebrity chefs were like, well, I guess this is where men get famous, so right, right. so none of you miss you. or like or yeah, why don't you come over here and uh you know and baste me next and, right, turn this lime into a moose. Seattle has seen some or of a foam yeah, exactly. Seattle has seen some of that kind of culinary foam, unfortunately. Then they served us something that was a dish that was designed to match a painting on the wall. They had actually brought in different paintings to match the colors of this dish, which had corn served. Three ways, including. I've had corn served three ways. Yeah, me but too. But that,
1: that's part of the experimental side of my life that, that this you has, wouldn't be This into. has
0: creamed corn <laughs> and grits and cornbread. All together. <laughs> in a milkshake. This was more like this has t- uh, some burnt corn tassel. It's got some, I think it's wheat lacoche, this um, fungus, corn smut that grows on corn. Corn smut? You don't want to eat corn smut? This is when you eat corn off a stripper. This is really
1: really (laughs) triggering me. So was it a situation where, like your house, they bought the paintings first and then made the food match the paintings? Or like my mom's house,
0: where she made the food first and then bought paintings to match it? I think this is a place where the menu maybe changes once a month or so, and the paintings change as well. The idea is to encourage repeated uh, visits from the rich and famous, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then there was a brook trout fish and chips where the chips were also made of fish. If you can get your mind around this paradox, Mm -hmm. there was a little soup called hot potato where there was a hot baby potato and a black truffle impaled above a bowl. And you had to pull out a toothpick, making the thing plop into the cold potato soup with a satisfying plop. And then you just tossed it back like a shot.
1: So it was like a, like an escape room.
0: (laughs) Yes. You had to, you had to unlock the potato puzzle if you wanted to enjoy both temperatures. Was it clear
1: what you were meant to do in every? Or did, the, yes, did no, the waiter explain it to you?
0: I could definitely see a course at this place some month where the waiter says, "Try to figure this out. Good luck. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a hint. Uh, B equals four. Right. And there's some chocolate series of locks or whatever. The key is made of fish, but the
1: lock cannot right. stand fish.
0: Yes. The figs will recoil from the from the caviar. Um, no, there were instructions, and which was good because you don't want to drink any of these things wrong you feel like you're being led through a through a performance art basically yeah there was a mushroom course um serving on pine needles so you would smell you would smell pine needles as you ate your matsutake mushrooms with pork belly and huckleberry then there was um a single ravioli on a spoon that had some kind of liquefied truffle that would explode in your mouth this is one of the chemistry techniques we'll talk about in molecular gastronomy is just changing the form of things. Things that you expect to be liquid are now jellies. Things that you would expect to be solid are now liquid. Was the spoon made of an octopus? <laughs> the spoon. I'm looking at pictures right now because Mindy was smart and took pictures. It's amazing how bad cameras were in 2012. Yeah. And all these pictures, I'm like, I look, I look like a Polaroid from like a Christmas when I'm six opening my sled or roller skates. Like it's... It's so funny how good cameras got in 10 years. Then there was a mystery lamb course. Oh, you were asking if it was an escape room. Yeah. This is more like a choose your own adventure book where they serve you, you know, three, a very simple thing with three kinds of lamb, but then they give you this massive, it looks like it's the size of the table, this massive 10 by six platter where there's literally 60 different sides that you can eat with your lamb. Oh, like, no two are alike, and it's this grid, like a Scrabble board. You can't possibly try all 60 of them. You couldn't, because you only have, you know, three uh, wedges of of lamb uh, shank, or whatever it was. Now, is
1: this one of—I'm uh, getting the sense that there's a time limit to how long you're allowed to contemplate this next dish before— Because if if everybody—if, like, it's right.
0: a five-minute stagger— If there's a like, second seating coming let's in a, go, at 8.30 at, or 9— yeah, I think we ended up eating everything. Oh, I think Mindy. Oh, Mindy's blog says she wanted to keep eating everything. Um, Mindy's blog. Mindy has an old blog. How did I not know about Mindy's blog? Because it ended in Ignamini in twenty fourteen or something. But uh, she didn't. She didn't think it was still up. We had to dig this out so that I could see these pictures. The internet
1: remembers. Uh,
0: yeah. So she just kept eating, and I was like, "You don't have to."
1: eat them all.
0: What? Of course you have to eat them all. I think she was actually right in hindsight. They but, cost you know, $50 each, I'm but, guessing. But they're all weird. You know, it's just some little square that has, uh, you know, kiwi fruit and um rabbit bacon. And then next to it, there's a thing that has sauerkraut made from some weird kind of kale and uh This is all meant to go on and, the lamb? Or? Yeah, it's just a little bite of something to eat with your lamb. But you decide yeah. which of these 60 lamb adventures you want
1: you can't do do all those little ramekins as oyster shooters just go down and just shoot them
0: all one at a time 60 of them what if you just you know it'd be hilarious to watch the server's face if you get this giant scrabble grid of 60 things and then you start stirring them around like you're yeah. eating you know bibimbap or a, that's what or a rice bowl that's what i would do i just think these these all go really well together then there was like you you were talking about um your enjoyment of comfort food mm-hmm. and much molecular gastronomy gets its jokes from serving something that looks like it's You know, it's fish and chips, but the chips are made of fish. Or in this case... And the fish is made of chips. Oh, you're getting it. (laughs) This is a hot dog on a stick, but the stick is a branch of a tree that's on fire. The hot dog is not a hot dog, but it's like breaded and fried woodcock. So it's a little more like a fritter than a sausage. And, you know, they put out the fire when they give it to you, but the flames are still smoking. So you're very much having kind of a campfire experience with your little final entree
1: but you're meant to hold it it's a hot dog Ooh. on a stick
0: so you so
1: you're not meant to hold it by the stick it's they, not like a corn I dog
0: i think you could man could you pick it up like maybe you could pick it up They're, they serve it in kind of this little this these metal prongs that look like one of those th- gimmicks you scratch your head with in sharper image you know what i'm talking about yeah yeah with right. the with the thin metal filaments that go around here that's meant to make you oh wow it makes you smart and zen i just can't even believe how much i feel the uh it's served in kind of a little one of those upside down, but I think maybe you do lift it out by the still smoking huh. stick to have more of a smorey experience. Then they gave us five types of ginger, also on metal prongs, as a palate cleanser. Um, that mm-hmm. was the last savory course. But then there were three dessert courses. The first one had a bunch of sorbets, including carrot. Yep. Uh, the oh, and then wait, I, is this right? And then underneath, it's served on top of some. Glass sphere full of like aromatics, like like a hot infusion of of citrus peels and herbs and flowers and stuff. Um, so you're smelling kind of herbal tea while you eat your ice cream, and then you then you drink some herbal tea. Uh, that's actually
1: uh, a good way of describing what it's like to date me. It's like a hot infusion of citrus and herbal. Tinctures. Is
0: this your dating app profile? Yeah, on top hey, of baby, carrot ice cream. Who wants a hot infusion of tinctures? <laughs> uh, the craziest course was the second dessert. It was a green apple taffy that had actually been inflated into a balloon, which then, you know, kind of floated over to you because they had inflated it with helium. And there was a basket under it <laughs> with a mouse. There is some kind of a, <laughs> there was some kind of a weight on it, I think. But you were just basically supposed to go Whoop, and suck in the, the taffy, which would then you know, sucking helium with it. So then you would talk like this for a minute. Ah. <laughs> and then someone comes behind and hits you with a cricket bat. I think the server said to kiss the balloon, which makes it go like a like an old bubble yum commercial all over your face. And then you're kind of cleaning yeah. Cleaning uh green apple taffy off your face with a with a munchkin voice. Worse for people with beards. Yeah, maybe um Maybe there's a food substitution. Do you have any sensitivities or, or allergies or facial hair I should know about? Sir? Yeah, uh, rabbit bacon. I'm allergic to rabbit bacon. <laughs> and then the final thing is is the famous dessert they always do there. I think they kind of roll out this silicone mat, and then a guy comes over. One of my friends went. I think it was Grant Atkins himself who did it, but we just had whoever was in the kitchen that night. And he just starts smearing things on the table like a Jackson Pollock, like a bunch of different um, powders and fruit. Um, what do you call it when you uh, increase the strength of something by cooking it down? Oh, a, a reduction! A reduction, yes. Yeah. Different kinds of fruit reductions and smears all over. And then there was this: he took a bowl lined with chocolate and poured dried ice, which immediately made you know, solidified the thing, and like made some kind of ice cream inside it. And then he smashed that on the table, so shards of chocolate pinata, just just newly born chocolate pinata. Hatch all over your table, along with all the meringue or nougat or whatever was in it. Um, it's like a Gallagher show. It's basically a Gallagher <laughs> show. But they must be very good at it, because I don't remember any spatter, or they don't hand out aprons like Gallagher does. Right. Anyway, the whole thing seemed like it could have been a candid camera, you know, to a... You know, even to somebody like me who likes trying new kinds of restaurants. The whole thing felt like I was being punked, maybe. Um the thing about how each, would you have reacted to something like that? Well, yeah, I was talking to
1: uh, a, a mental health professional yesterday who was explaining, um, you know, the way, I don't know, you, you don't use mental health professionals because you're
0: a Christian scientist, but... No, I use them for my purposes. I send them on errands. Oh, I see. I, right. Sometimes I pit them against each other. <laughs> but this one, you know, they all,
1: a lot of them at least have this kind of, just depending on how many degrees they have, they they like to... Every once in a while say like, well, I have a lot of clients who fly around in Learjets and here's what I've learned from them. And you're like, I know, you went to Harvard. That's not what you want to hear from your
0: therapist, what they're learning from the
1: rich. But but one of the things that, you know, one of the things I find very helpful is when they say uh, uh, everybody's got problems. Rich people got problems. Uh, You think that these people that have four beautiful children have, they also have terrible problems. People have problems. Not everybody has problems. Ken Jennings and Mindy Jennings don't have problems, but other people have problems. We have tons of problems. And so it, it just occurs to me as this is going on, like, you have to be so rich and so bored exactly, to, to want this and to enjoy it. But
0: do they enjoy it? If you're that rich and that bored, can you enjoy anything? Right, it's always the the looky lose like us that are taking cell phone photos. Yeah, and you guys are like, oh my god, this is hilarious. The, the hedge fund guy, at the next table is like, yawn. Is this the only? Are you kidding Bro- me? Brook Trout, really? Uh, wasn't there? Wasn't it Sturgeon last month? Chips out of fish, fish out of chips. Come on. The uh, it feels a little bit like American Psycho. This is something I want to interrogate about this because from the outside, it very much looks like this is a decadent culture in decline, where a tiny group of people. Have unlimited money to throw at bread and circuses like this, except the bread is made out of uh, uh, fennel. Circus and the circuses are <laughs> the circus made out of bread. Are made out of bread.
1: <laughs> so, how is this related to that to that restaurant in Denmark where they actually go down on the beach and
0: pick stuff up that's washed up on the beach and serve it to you? Right. Um, so there are lots of different <coughs> kinds of branches in modern cookery. Um, I don't want to say modernist cuisine since that name's kind of been appropriated for this chemistry-based stuff. Uh, but there's a lot of overlap, you know, this, the idea of molecular gastronomy, which pointless anecdote over now we can define. Okay. yeah, Basically, We're 26 minutes in. I feel like that's fine. Just the idea of training the lens of science and not in a food science or traditional nutritional science way, but actually the lens of chemistry mm-hmm. and even industrial chemistry, you know, an equipment that home kitchens and restaurant kitchens do not have on the actual Culinary transformations that happen to ingredients as during the course of food prep. Well, you need an autoclave. Literally an autoclave. Like there will be autoclaves really? in the story. There oh, will, I'm there so are, excited. There are ultrasonic waves and liquid nitrogen in this story. Um, and again, on the one hand, it just seems like, well, these are people with this is people with unlimited money. That autoclave should be in a hospital. But the, what the chefs would say.
1: Uh, Sir, that like, <laughs> autoclave should be in a hospital. How many
0: children have died because you are preparing uh, some kind of orchid reduction in there? Uh, no, the uh, the point of view of the chef would be that we're going to treat food as art, and thus art has always worked. Uh, a, a small group of wealthy collectors oh, nice. supporting the creative impulses of, of a... Uh, uh, you know, essentially a starving Garrett class. Sure. Uh, bringing them this stuff, and eventually a few rise to the top and are able to to hobnob with their rich clients. But that's, that's just how we expect art to work. It's—for the numbers to work in a capitalist society, art is not really for the masses.
1: Well, and just like impressionist painting eventually led to uh, public housing— <laughs> Uh, all art <laughs> Wait, eventually it? all eventually trickles down to improve the lives of the poor. Can
0: I move into Rouen Cathedral now? <laughs> Welcome to Monet Estates.
1: Yeah, I mean, think about all of the uh, the Gaudi uh, apartment buildings in Barcelona that that uh, revolutionized the way Spanish public housing is constructed.
0: I think they're all no museums corners now. in the rooms. <laughs> exactly, like the poor were always impaling themselves on the yeah. sides of things. Now they can roll around the the gaily colored <laughs> interiors as much as they like. Uh, This uh, entry is titled Modernist Cuisine because that's the term preferred by a local boy, Seattle's own Nathan Mervold. Oh, Nathan, Nathan Mervold. Do you know, Mervold, have you ever... I saw him at Bumbershoot once, but I guess you were not the interviewer at that show. No,
1: I, I he he didn't come on my show. No, I don't know... You know, I I know a lot of local chefs, but, but, but again, they're all farmed table types. Right. I, don't, I don't know any of these ones that are like... Um, uh, crossing over into being um like uh what art, art happenings
0: yeah i mean you you asked about noma the the mm-hmm. famous danish restaurant which is much more about fresh and simple preparation but these chemi- chemistry techniques have gotten so deep in the culture that No matter what style of restaurant you're at, you may see something frothed into a foam that you think should not be a foam or a flavor of ice cream that you think is too savory to be a flavor of ice cream. And I've encountered some foams recently that I was like,
1: "Uh,
0: a a foam, I guess.
1: I mean, they're always good, I think, for the most part, but like a, I don't know, foam. (laughs) A foam that tastes like liver. Ken, you know I'm a writer.
0: Yes, you love making content. The I world do. doesn't have enough, and you're like, here's the fire hose. Here comes some content. The
1: thing is, I make a lot of content, but I don't put it in the fire hose because I want a more integrated community, and, uh, and I don't know where to find it.
0: Are you saying you would like some kind of fully integrated commenting system that allows for... Threaded comments and replies and likes like you have your very own little social media platform for your content? That's
1: exactly what I want to do. And I want it optimized for mobile. I want my uh, my content to adjust so my site looks great on any device, but I'm at a
0: loss. You, John, need the powerful blogging tools of Squarespace. It's easy with Squarespace to set up a website that does all that. Categorize, share, and schedule your posts, you can cross post so you put something up once and it knows how to send it in the right format to Twitter or Tumblr or Facebook whatever you want. Everything optimized and tagged and ready to go. Squarespace sounds great. It does. Well, I'm I'm so excited. Uh, you know, this is exactly what I've been looking for. So, so what do I do? John, I want you right now to head to squarespace.com/omnibus. Stop whatever you're doing. Burr- Go to squarespace.com omnibus and start your free trial. And when you're ready to launch, then you just use offer code omnibus and you're going to save not two, not five, but 10% off your first purchase of the Squaresite website or domain. Well, thank you to
1: Squarespace for supporting Omnibus and the Omnibus Project. Help us by helping yourself. Go to squarespace.com omnibus. And put in the offer code Omnibus to save ten percent off your first purchase of a website or domain.
0: Let's introduce Mister Mervold, and then we'll talk about his his cookbook. Okay. Um, he was born in Seattle, but raised elsewhere. But uh, I think California. But just a genius. Like his is the most unusual chef story I've ever heard. He had uh, his first PhD from Princeton at age twenty-two, I believe. How old is he? Is in he- applied mathematics. Uh, he's now in his, I want to say he's pushing 60. Let me see if I'm right about that. 1959. Mm -hmm. Yes. So he would be 63. Um, after he got his PhD or two, he started doing postdoctoral work at Cambridge with Stephen Hawking. Oh. Studying gravitational theory and quantum mechanics, you know. As you do. The kind of thing that, you know, your, your typical middle-class American striver does. Clearly this guy is just the best and the brightest on every level.
1: I wonder if he has my same psychiatrist.
0: <laughs> I think he might be able to afford an even higher class of psychiatrist. His uh after after his company was purchased by Microsoft in the 90s, he spent 13 years there. He totally was regular. He was the C- the first CTO of Microsoft. Microsoft had never had a chief technological officer before 1996 cuz hmm. it was effectively they were all Gates and Allen, yeah, every CTOs. Yeah, it's, um, but from 1996 to 1999, he was the company's first CTO. And his net worth at the time he walked in 1999 is, was reckoned to be upwards of $600, $650 million. Right. So um, he he could have an army of therapists. Yeah, right. Um, Lucien
1: Freud was his
0: therapist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he is, as we'll see, an art lover. Um, he at, at 1999, I believe, is when he took a sabbatical from Microsoft and kind of walked... Aw- I mean, he didn't walk away from the tech world, but this guy, unlike many that I've experienced in that sector, is a true renaissance person. Um, he's an award-winning nature and wildlife photographer. I mean, they all fancy themselves as true renaissance people. Right, but this guy actually has the resume to back him up. Like, this guy has done peer-reviewed, journal-published work, unlike so many sciences that have nothing to do with Microsoft operating systems. Like, he's, he's an astronomer who argues with the people in the field about what size... How, you know, how you calculate the size of asteroids... He's a dinosaur nerd who also has invented a new way to detect fossils, I think... uh, Wait, he doesn't have that house in Madrona
1: with the the life-size dinosaur in it? That's the guy. You've been by Uh, I've I've seen it. I was on a boat and I was like, wait, this guy's got a a Tyrannosaurus rex in his living room. Oh, no, he has
0: multiple Tyrannosaurus rexes in his living room. Wow. Like, you you know, this guy's not just one T-Rex, Rich. I know exactly where he lives. That's quite a house. Do you want to go uh, egg it or something?
1: We should get in our boat and go over there. Well, I bet he's got a really low Erdos number. We should land in his yard and say... Look, let's co-author a paper.
0: You should egg it with jellied spheres that look like eggs. but Make a slurping sound as they roll down your window. But are actually made of uh, lobster and and,
1: uh, jicama. It's so funny because that house has for a long time stuck in my mind as an example (laughs) of don't give people in, in Medina too much money because here's what happens. But I didn't realize he was actually... He wasn't just collecting dinosaurs because he was rich. He was.
0: He probably found them all.
1: Yeah, right. On oh. the
0: property, perhaps. Hmm. Those are just all his backyard dinosaurs. I don't think there are that many no. dinosaurs in the Washington has almost no dinosaur fossils, right? It's kind of a bummer. Well, they're all covered with a thousand layers of hummus. Oh, you're just saying we haven't dug enough. We need more hobby tunnelers to, to, to unleash the power, <laughs> yeah. the hidden power of all our dinosaur bones. <laughs> um, so he's a dinosaur hunter. Um, he's a climate change guy. I think his. Um, Has all this theoretical work on what to do if you you, could you put enough sulfur in the atmosphere to counteract global warming? He's got a new kind of asking. I say yes. Yeah, let's just try it. Make the whole world smell like farts. I feel like you. Yeah, you spend a lot of your day trying to put enough sulfur into the atmosphere to counteract global warming.
1: It's like hobby tunneling.
0: (laughs) Uh, He's got a new kind of nuclear plant. He's invented. I mean, a lot of his day job today is this uh, what he calls a patent incubator to help empower small inventors, but what in practice turns out to be a patent troll company like Uh buying up a lot of stuff and then engaging in litigation from you know just to get settlements from adjacent technology in the name of protecting these little inventors but but coincidentally really uh i we know some people who know him and i guess uh, the one time maria semple met him i think or at least the first time she met him she was just like so what's all that patent troll stuff did you read the story about you in the wall street journal like what do you uh (laughs) <laughs> how did he like that? Apparently, he really just rolled with it and was super kind of open and friendly. I th- I've I've seen him speak, and I know people who know him, and he seems to be a lovely guy. Um, you know, apart from the you saw him speak at at Bumbershoot. He oh. did a thing oh, about. Right, you were saying. It was kind of like molecular gastronomy for dummies. Basically, he put Pop Rocks in chocolate and handed it out, and was like, "See how it's a totally different experience? You've had Pop Rocks, you've had chocolate. These are like things a child would eat, but something different goes on when the chocolate like pops in your mouth." You know? Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the ethos of, well, let's get to his his main love, uh, I think, for most of his life has been food. When Mirvold was nine, he actually made a Thanksgiving dinner from scratch for his family. This was like his project. He went to the public library and brought home a stack of books and learned how to candy yams and all the rest. And As a father of an
1: 11-year-old, that seems amazing to me.
0: Yeah, every time I think about, you know, I, I read about these you know the little kids who live in Lake Titicaca or whatever and they get up every morning and sweep the barge and rebate all the hooks and, and yeah I, and I'm like I right, my kids just leave their clothes next to the hamper
1: or those little Japanese babies that get sent on incredible missions across Tokyo for that crazy television show? exactly none of them
0: get none of them get hit by yeah by Dotson's it's they can, amazing they
1: can barely climb a <laughs> set of stairs but it's like go get a fish and bring it home
0: they do have a little orange flag or something. I mean, often and they a get,
1: television crew that's following. Them
0: often right? they get to the store and forget what kind of ramen they were supposed to get, but that's relatable. I do that. Yeah. I'm as smart as a Japanese baby. Quarter milk, I, in a my stick opinion. of butter. Right, let's see, what is it? A loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick, a stick of, of butter. butter. You remembered. You remembered yeah, almost when still at Microsoft. Man, woman, <sighs> camera. <laughs> uh, when he was still at Microsoft, he took a sabbatical for a year and went to study. At some elite, went to study le gastronomie française at some.
1: I have that book.
0: Yeah. Uh, he went to some super elite cooking school in Burgundy, and I'm sure he owns that book too. Wait, when did he find time to do that? Exactly. This guy's got dinosaurs to hunt and, and, and uh, sulfur to put into the, the exosphere. But
1: When I wake up in the morning, if I get one thing done,
0: I'm like, pat on the back. I tell myself that when you have this kind of money, you have a staff of people sure, sure, sure. that make all these goals super attainable because all you have to do is tip six dominoes, right? And they suddenly there's a new model of power plant, or they're, they're
1: putting your your slippers on already and handing you your your coffee, right. right?
0: Maybe he's invented something to spill him out of bed, like like Wallace and Gromit or or whatever, into his into his into his uh, chef's apron, into his Batmobile. Um, so around this time in the '90s, he discovers the pioneers of molecular gastronomy. Chefs like Ferran Adria in Northern Spain, uh, Heston Blumenthal, who is, he's kind of the, I think he's kind of the, I mean, there's a lot of ancestors of, of chemistry and food, but he's kind of the the beginning of modern molecular gastronomy. In the early 80s, he bought this rundown pub in Berkshire and immediately just started, just thought, what if we serve the craziest stuff? You know, the, And this is where he, his famous bacon and egg ice cream and his, snail porridge and uh you know the kind of things that make restaurant critics think "Ooh, i've never had that there's only one place to get this
1: some of it sounds like astronaut food
0: right like a turkey yes. dinner and a pill and it's post-industrial it's like using all these uh, foods that were created by the industrial labs at all the machines that mcdonald's and nabisco have but um right. sardis did not right, you know right, like right. what are the new possibilities now and it combines like you say the the classic French perfectionism of, of the le gastronomique plus this American empiricism that we see in um, like America's test kitchen from the eighties on like, okay, there's 26 ways to make a chocolate chip cookie. We're going to turn the, the cold eye of efficiency on yeah. how much should you brown the butter and scientifically rationally, should there be walnuts and, you know, and yeah. so you get these cookbooks that are like consumer reports for food, basically like, We've done the work, and this is the pecan pie to make. This is the only way to roast a chicken. Somehow every can of Chef
1: Boyardee mini ravioli tastes exactly the same, and you have no idea what's in it. How can that possibly be, given that every cow has its own personality and its own eyelashes, and every cherry tomato grows differently under the sun?
0: McDonald's wants to deliver you... Nine McNuggets that taste exactly the same as every other McNugget you've ever had. Every can time. confirm that the McNuggets do not taste the same
1: because every 15th has a beak in it.
0: <laughs> I thought you were going to say every 15 years I have one and they you can see them change over time.
1: I haven't had one for years, but when they first debuted, do you remember like you would sometimes get a McNugget that was a wrong McNugget? <laughs> do you oh no, you were probably in Korea at the time. No,
0: I remember having, Mc- I remember when McNuggets came out. Um, I remember
1: I was like, oh, this one's delicious. Wow, this one's amazing. And then there was one that, you know, that was like,
0: had a claw. I naively thought they were actual parts of a chicken, chunks of chicken. I didn't realize they had been pressed into four approved shapes. You know, Do you know this? They've got the ball, the bell, the bone, and the. Oh. There's like four four uh, permitted shapes into which McNuggets are pressed. I
1: didn't know that. Uh, They're made of pink slime, but, but
0: chicken. Pink yeah, slime? It's, yeah, it's like chicken gets pureed and other fillers get added and then it all gets deep fried. And it's delicious because McDonald's has a great food lab that knows. That has turned the cold eye of science onto how can we tickle your taste buds the most. Right. And these chefs like Audrey Blumenthal and then Wiley Dufresne were like, there's no reason fine dining shouldn't do that. Why shouldn't this wine sauce taste the intensest it possibly can, you know? Or why shouldn't this soup be, you know, the coldest it can scientifically be served? Okay, I'm into this now. Oh, now that it's um, now that it's got the food labs of Nabisco and uh, well, now and that Kellogg's
1: I, involved. Now that I see that it's a logical extension of if we're ma- if we're throwing chickens into a hopper and making, uh, making this mass food, making goo that that tastes good and that sells by the millions, why wouldn't you put organic something in right. there and try and make a
0: different thing? And you can still use the weird ingredients that these manufacturers. Um, popularized, you know, we can still get methyl cellulose and agar and, and make, you know, jelly up a little beads of whatever, like the food will often have, uh, uh, you know, something about it will be unexpected is kind of the ethos as I understand it. You know, um, it'll be a texture you've never eaten before. That's where, that's where Blumenthal's and Adria's foams came from is just, you know, nobody's ever injected carbon dioxide into your, into your food. Um, let's try that. It'll be so light. It'll be like, you're barely eating it. Right. Um, but it still tastes like steak. Exactly. Yeah, it'll it'll have the intense flavor that these food labs can can uh, maximize, but something will be different. It'll be an unexpected temperature because we'll use liquid nitrogen or dry ice, or um, it'll be an unexpected flavor. We talked about the ice cream that was savory. I, I've been to or, or something about the shape, uh, the preparation of it. You know, they they popularized using um, gelatins to make to serve things that look like caviars but are in fact made from Cornish game hen or a uh, 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 sun choke or you know, you're eating your food in boba form, even though it tastes exactly like a salad or a soup or something. Well,
1: it feels like if you go to any ice cream parlor in Venice Beach, California, um, where there's a line down the block, yes. I'm, I'm looking at you, Salt and Straw. This
0: is a post Salt and Straw is post-molecular gastronomy ice cream. Yeah, where you go in and there's 14
1: flavors of ice cream available, and they are all black licorice or. Uh,
0: road salts or haggis, like salt and straw, will, will serve you. Will serve you blood sausage ice cream. Uh, right around Halloween, I think. And
1: is that? And it's it's really in the same
0: family. Yeah, that's that's post Blumenthal thinking. Like ice cream could taste like bacon and eggs. Why not screw you? I mean, they don't say screw you. <laughs> no,
1: they basically. do. But I
0: mean, the dishes kind of do say screw you. Like I went to a Blumenthal restaurant in London once, where the gimmick is that it's all historical recipes back to back to the Norman Conquest but then updated with modern tech. Because I've been to that restaurant in Estonia, except the
1: waitresses were all dressed like wenches, and, the, <laughs> and it was just venison sausage. It was just a, medieval times?
0: Yeah, it, it really was, except, <laughs> except expensive. Uh, I've eaten at those places in many European countries, and the service is terrible, right? Yeah, right, because they're like, that is how it would have been. I'm going to spill ale on you. Uh, but the the signature dish of this place in London was they would serve you a mandarin orange, and you slice into it, and in fact it's uh what it's chicken liver mousse it's some kind of a, a pate and it's not even in an orange skin in fact they have actually used gelatin to turn orange juice and solids and rind into an edible orange skin looking thing that can be wrapped around meat fun it's based on a henry the 8th meat orange but with you know he didn't have methylcellulose you know right uh
1: uh, the Henry VIII meat orange.
0: And so we get Merville, the guy who is seeing these food trends take over kitchens around the world and has $650 million. And he's like, that's great. Like, um, the sky's the limit. He opens this food lab in Bellevue where he just buys one of everything. Vacuum sealers, colloid mills, ultrasonic welders, medical-level autoclaves, just hundreds of gadgets. Rotary evaporators? Hmm. I mean, my first job was programming binary load lifters which are very similar to your rotary evaporators but he has what about turbo yeah he has a turbo encabulator that huh. he feeds watermelon and uh and pork belly into uh the, the idea is you just produce with these things you can produce things that push the definition of food it it looks like leather but it's not it's not meat it's watermelon or it's it's paper but it's spinach or it's rose petals but you can eat it or so this is a test kitchen, but he's
1: not actually making this stuff to like. It doesn't seem like any of this food travels well, <laughs> right? Right. You're not going to make <laughs> right. a Henry VIII blood uh, meat orange and then
0: put it in a in a shrink wrap and sell it at Whole Foods. My guess is he's approaching this the way a laboratory scientist was. He's like, I'm going to push forward the field, um, and maybe I bet he has dinner parties for small groups of East Side elites, right? Um, where he's like, you know, you're never going to believe. See if you can taste what's in this. And his guests are like, "Oh, Nathan, look, it's you need to crinkle it and sprinkle it over the other food before you eat it." Tee-hee. It's like
1: those parties in the in those homes, they all all, all of a sudden there are like 50 staff. <laughs> like, Where f- did they come from? You have 50
0: people working for this <laughs> dinner party, there's only like 18 people here. He called it the cooking lab. Um, but I guess his, his you know, what he speaks of is the origin of his publishing life. Uh, is in 2004 he's getting very into sous vide, mm-hmm. which is kind of the thin edge of the molecular gastronomy wedge because you can actually do it at home now. Do, do you have you ever eaten sous vide? You food? put a
1: steak in a plastic bag and you cook it in boiling water, and it comes out seeming like it was seared in a in a
0: pan, or more or less. Although you don't get the sear, so it's got to be a like like many of these point? recipes, it turns into a twenty step process. Right. But yeah, the idea is chemically if you study the way. Proteins, et cetera, work. It turns out that what you want to do is cook your meat at an absurdly low temperature for an absurdly long time, Uh, rather than the caveman tendency of burn um, it a high temperature for a short time. Burn it and turn it. Burn it and turn it. No, you do not want to burn it and turn it. What you want to do is put it, as you say, in a bath of like mildly warm water. You know, like instead of an oven turned to three seventy-five, this would be like a bath turned to one seventy-five or something. And then you just leave it there for three days. And I guess apparently the meat cooks very evenly and tenderly. And then you're gonna to have to blowtorch it with something if you want to sear. I don't know if you recall, but uh
1: presidents of the United States of America drummer Jason Finn at one point promised you
0: and I he did a dinner of sous vide. It even got scheduled once and then cancelled due to Something.
1: Yeah. And the last time I talked to him about it, he was like, Oh, I've moved on from sous vide. I'm, you know, I'm back into cooking in a green egg. Yeah.
0: And I was like, What? Like, that's a, that was, that was a confirmed dinner invitation. We'll have you over for, I mean, sous vide has now entered the household kitchen because, you know, through a bunch of kind of Kickstarter like projects, really all you need is something to, Stick into your bath of water and keep the temperature constant. So you have it now. Yeah, it's just like a cylinder. You stick into a, uh, you stick into a something crockpot like. You yeah, know, you say that, but your kitchen is like twenty five hundred square feet, and you have a fondue pot. And you so, mi- a- so the, this we are living in a time of kitchen fads, as yeah. Jason Finn has alluded to with <laughs> his with his three months of sous vide. He buys a new coffee maker every three months. Right. He's like, "Oh, that old coffee maker didn't." And we are not immune from that, you know. Like Mindy will be like, "Ooh, what's this new thing?" And of course, I'm always trying to figure out what you give the woman who has everything. So I'm, I'm certainly enabling this every birthday and Christmas. Like, oh look at this! There's a new kind of of mandoline. You're not you're not slicing your your uh, sunchoke's thin enough. Meanwhile, I'm at Costco buying uh, giant crates of Keurig
1: pods <laughs> and basing my decision on the pi- the the
0: price per piece of like Keurig. It's true. Like we don't drink, so that you know wine cannot be our connoisseurship. We don't right. drink coffee, nope. so like we don't have that to fall back on. Right. No drugs, so it can't be a favorite strain of, of whatever the young people are are vaping.
1: Right. You're um, not you're not going to like uh, key parties.
0: So it's it's always Mindy trying to perfect some some uh, you know chicken recipe that looked great on America's right. Test Kitchen or Milk Street or something, but like can't quite get it right consistently at home. Well, it makes it great to come to small dinner parties at your house, but I have to say when you
1: come to big barbecues at your house, it's just that's just, just me cooking. It's just Kirkland hamburgers. <laughs> I want to go. I want to get invited to more of the. Nice
0: you want to go to the ones where Mindy cooks. Yes, the ones where I cook are uh, are pretty down market. It's true. Um, so he's trying to get into sous vide very early to the degree that when he asks people about it on chat rooms, like, "Hey, what are the best like sous vide cookbooks?" People are like, "Lol, there's no sous vide cookbook." Oh, um, here's one in Spanish that Ferran Adria says is good. You know, he's like, "Wait." The the folks on the eGullet forums tell me I have to learn Spanish to do sous vide. So I have six hundred fifty million dollars. This will not stand.
1: Who invented Sous vide? Is it some ancient practice? But you need a plastic bag, so it can't be that
0: old. Uh yeah, you need to vacuum seal the uh the stuff. And so I'm not sure how well it would work if you didn't do it. You I mean did there, it in a
1: wine skin. There have
0: been low temper there's been low temperature cooking back to 1799. But obviously the modern technique of um of having to vacuum seal everything has to be twentieth century. I, I think nobody had heard of this stuff until you know Hess and Blumenthal and then you know his his gang started doing it. Is this just about um,
1: about tenderness and trigger alert moistness? Yes, there it's are, not. It's not about eating a raw steak that's been seared in a campfire. Isn't
0: bad for you? No, all oh. this is just about you know we've nailed down certain kinds of. Chemical reactions in these in, in the myoglobin or whatever in the meat, where if it happens at this speed, your you, the fibers get like this, and if it happens at that speed, the fibers get like that. And let me tell you, this a will melt in your mouth. So you're doing your myoglobin wrong, and everybody has been. So they they in, they dis- basically discover new chemical reactions previously unknown to to anatomists and laboratories. Often they are given new names for which are you know a chef who is also some kind of applied scientist is naming this new reaction. And now people on the street know what the Maillard reaction is that, that Sears meet, you know, people this, on
1: what street,
0: wall street, <laughs> fifth Avenue, Rodeo drive. Um, so annoyed by the fact that there's no cookbook, he says, look, I have nine figure assets. There's going to be this cookbook and it's going to be amazing. He prefers the term what you find about molecular gastronomy is almost no practitioner of it calls it that. They all have some. Oh, I don't do that. Grant Ackett says I do forward thinking cooking, cookery, and uh, somebody else says, oh, I do deep. I can't remember who it is, I do constructivist cooking. Wow. And uh, M- Mervold liked the term modernist cuisine because his take was that um, every art form had modernism in the early twentieth century. You know, where we finally started to question the ancient basis for the art and to see it in a post-industrial way to do shocking things to the viewer like cubism or brutalism or whatever it is you know just create these visceral is this art kind of reactions and he was like food never got that Hmm. food never had the moment like food was always just basically like poor food well is it do i like do i like it and even if you're like a french food scholar it's more like did they do it right yeah right, right it was never like what what emotions does it provoke in the in the observer, in the critic, you know, it, it treating the diner as if it's a, an art patron, it, as if they're an art patron.
1: Right. You're meant to take a bite of the Ratatouille and break into tears because it reminds you of your mom.
0: Exactly. And, you know, that's a, you know, that goes back to Proust. So that kind of idea that there's an emotional response to to comfort food, certainly that's an idea that's older than than Adria and Blumenthal and Keller and Ackett's, but... um, but this is just a new. It it's the surprise,
1: right? Yeah. If you if you look at the ratatou- ratatouille and you're like, "That's what my mom used to make," but this is like that looks like that looks like a little right. toy car. Yeah, the, it,
0: oh, it t- that, tastes like macaroni and cheese. Exactly that element of oh poo poo ratatouille, and then you're like ah, this comfort food is actually perfect and innovative. Then you're then you're dealing with the the province of modern yeah, yeah, modernist okay. cuisine. Humor is often an element. Like, should food be funny? I don't know, but you know, why not? Like you can still experience, I think that what I noticed at Alinea was, it was just a floor show. You're still experiencing well-cooked food, but on top of it, there's a layer of, and you're looking at this, or and you're smelling this, or and you're kissing apple taffy all over your face, you know, and and to the degree that it wasn't a distraction, I wasn't against it. Yeah, right. Um, So he says, look, nouvelle cuisine of the 80s was impressionism, but nobody ever actually said, let's go full on, Picasso modernism and food. And I'm going to create the joy of cooking of that, the single general reference. Um, So he hires a couple chefs who have actually cooked at, at Fat Duck and other molecular gastronomy places. In fact, eventually he gets a staff of 20 cooks and researchers reaches out to nearly a hundred more to contribute their own inventions and innovations and, and, uh, recipes, um, and it's supposed to come out in fall. You know, He spends years on this, and it's due to come out for Christmas 2020. That can't be right. It's that Christmas, new. No, it's Christmas 2010. Sorry. Oh. I misread my own letters. It's supposed to come out in Christmas of 2010, um, but the scope of it just keeps creeping. Um, he wants people to be able to make this stuff at home. In fact, that's the ethos of the book. 80% of this stuff, oh. you could cook actually cook at home. If you had enough time and— enough ingredients, right? That's the issue. A lot of it is time. There's a cheeseburger recipe in there that takes How long would you say a cheeseburger should take to cook?
1: If I'm doing it, it should take 5 minutes to cook otherwise people are yelling at me, "Where are the cheeseburgers?" <laughs> but I think and if I'm in a restaurant, I I will give it 15 minutes. But how long should a cheeseburger take? Well, cook?
0: this one takes 30 hours. 30 hours. Just because of all this. I mean, for a lot of that is just sous-viding the beef before you do the other stuff to it that makes it cheeseburgery. Right. You've got to melt the cheese and reform it. Oh. You've got to vacuum compress your heirloom tomato. You've got to bake your own brioche buns and then somehow like uh, saute them in beef suet. Um, I always feel, uh, when I'm presented with a meal like this, that I should
1: eat it really slowly. Exactly. Because how can you... If you take a bite of it and you're like, wow, you also—and then I guess this is why the portions are
0: so small, because you
1: get used to anything. Right. So by your third bite, you're
0: like, yep. You want that one intense blast, and then I'm going to wow you with something else.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, 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 lear- I learn and relearn this all the time, that if you take one spoonful of ice cream, you've already had—
0: the eighty percent of the pleasure. Yeah, that's yeah.
1: it. It's not going to get any better. You're just going to get inured to it, and then the rest of
0: it is just shoveling fat. But we've all got this Ford's or Hindbrain that's like, finish that bowl, finish that bowl. Yeah, you know, like who knows when winter is coming. Um, he's got a perfectly cooked breakfast egg that takes four and a half hours. So you're, you know, you're not going to be hungry for breakfast, or you'll be super hungry for breakfast by the time you will have eaten six pop tarts by the time your four and a half breakfast egg is completed.
1: But this is kind of like crock pot cooking except you don't put the stew in in the morning and it's ready for dinner. Right.
0: <laughs> and there is some level of, you know, you have to sit in. But also, you know, you're filling hours with some of the stuff you're doing here because, you know, you're, you are you got to make your own uh, mustard truffle ketchup for this cheeseburger. And, you know, it really is... Um, I mean, there's a few trends that are in, in cookbooks that we discussed in the Irma Rombauer show that are kind of converging here. First, there's cookbook as art object you know just a thing you you know i gave mindy the um the home version of modernist cuisine which is tiny compared to the real one whoa it's like a box set and it's still enormous and she's looked at it and she's had this for years and she's never made a single thing i mean that's from a it. beautiful thing it's a beautiful piece of well let's talk about that like let's talk about what eventually happened it, it, the 2010 got pushed the release got pushed to march of 2021 can i look at it while you're talking that's why i thing. brought it take oh, a look boy. again i don't have the real one that's kind of the later what do you mean, one what do you volume. Mean you don't have
1: the real one? This thing is
0: the size of a cinder block. That's modern cuisine, modernist cuisine at home, which came out several years later. The original weighed 48 pounds, the full six-volume version, which also has a, I think, a separate spiral-bound kitchen manual.
1: So it's like the Oxford English Dictionary.
0: Yeah. The, the ink alone weighs four pounds. It's 2,400 pages. Um Whoa. He decided he couldn't find a publisher for it. Like the only publisher he found said, "Well, I'll do three thousand of these as a favor." Well,
1: here's pressure cooked paella. It only takes twenty five minutes, and paella takes longer than twenty five minutes.
0: <laughs> well, that's pretty good. Yeah, I, I think these recipes here are chosen for like, make what should I home. make for like what should I make for dinner tomorrow? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. and and not like what's a fun thing to spend a weekend on if I'm a huge foodie? Here's some yakitori nerd. that takes twenty five hours. But they really do go nuts. Like you read interviews with these guys, and they're like, "If you, you know, French fries are good, but what would happen if you blast them with ultrasonic waves?" And it turns out it makes all it extrudes all the starch, so that when you fry it, the starch makes little cute hairy filaments. And they're like, mm, "This is good. It's really crunchy." But now there's not enough starch inside the French fries, so now we have to figure out a second process that'll infuse new starch into the French fries to replace the stuff that we cavitated out. Um, it is, this food is really delicious looking. It is nuts. Yeah. I mean, that's why people like these coffee table cookbooks, but it's also cookbook as science text. And it's the thing we kind of talked about. It's cookbook as consumer reports. Like what's the, you know, what's the, the best possible texture for a, whatever, strawberry shortcake, uh, for a leg of lamb for, you know, succotash, whatever it is you're making. Um, yeah, I didn't expect these to, to show, um,
1: like, well, this is kind of what an egg looks like to your mom, and this is what an egg looks like if you... Oh, know. does it have before and after like Not that? before and after, but like... Done right versus done wrong? Or just sort of like, here's how, you know, here's what it'll look like at this, but, but if you take it another 25 hours...
0: So this is an author with $650 million who has just unlimited resources to throw at everything. So they would, you know, they would cut pans in half to get beautiful cross-section photography of of what's actually happening in every part of the baking or broiling or whatever it is process. So he found a publisher, but they would only do 3,000 copies? Yeah. And, and
1: that wasn't enough.
0: No, well, he finally decided, okay, fine. This is a, you know, you can kind of see it's the ultimate vanity project. He's like, fine, I'm going to self-publish this. And he, in his with his own dime, he prints 6,000 copies. And the food world is already buzzing. You know, everybody who's heard about this is like, You've never seen a cookbook like this before, so you've got all these celebrity chefs with a million followers, David Chang or whoever is like, I'm gonna be getting this on opening day this is gonna change my life. this guy cut a microwave oven in half somehow so exactly <laughs> so all these these home kitchen people who are like, well no not now i'm I'm gonna be like David Chang if I have this um even though the sticker price is six hundred and twenty five dollars yes um it sells out immediately uh suddenly nobody can get a copy of this book what seemed like a huge quixotic vanity project on behalf of uh, a guy with too much money um, became the most successful self-published book of all time he immediately went back to press for another 25,000 do we say
1: quixotic in, on this show is that one of our is that one of our words
0: like is that a you mean a weird pronunciation or
1: yeah is that is that is that like uh, do you say quixotic uh, no well kiotic wouldn't that is, sound, is, am I wrong in saying that?
0: That seems, that seems like a chaotic way to De- say.
1: Don Quixote and it's chaotic instead of quixotic? I mean, I like it. I'll I'll say it that way.
0: I think quixotic might be right. But there definitely is a thing where if you say something the hyper-correct way, like every time Alex Trebek ever said Don Juan, because that's the correct way to say the Byron poem. Oh, really? Yeah. it's it, He got letters. It came, yeah, because that came from a time when that was the the way angle-sized people angle-sized it. such
1: an Alex Trebek.
0: And he would get letters and he'd be like, Byron said don't you and you can tell by how it scans. But (laughs) anyway, so this thing, he is now in the 10 years, in the decade plus that modernist cuisine has been in high-end kitchens of the absurdly rich, um, it has now made $30 million in proceeds. It's- it's, the, it's all the, of the cost of produ- producing it, and it has still made $30 million. Well, it's it's sold $30 million worth of copies, making it the most successful self-published books of all kind. If you, t- if you estimate-
1: It costs $28 million to, to, to publish.
0: Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he has lost so much. He has sold so many T-Rex skeletons. Uh, no, but if you assume that each one of these six-volume things, for which, by the way, they had to do drop tests. A lot of the delay was because they were worried it was going to get banged up in shipping. So they were dropping them off buildings um, and missed their Christmas delivery date. Uh, if you assume that it costs you know somewhere between $100 and $200 to print each copy, he still made about over $5 million in profit. He can't go wrong, this character. It turns out that the rich, given endless resources, get richer. Wow. It makes me almost want to hold up this sign. But Nathan's a nice guy, apart from the patent trolling I so. don't
1: think any of this is compatible with Marxism, not a single thing. Not a thing, single thing you've said. Because
0: art should be for the people. Right. Yes. I mean, it is It is hard. No? I mean, at least... Th- I don't know. That's one difference between these culinary arts and visual arts is that presumably from the beginning of modernism on, any common man could go down to the art gallery and put down their, their tuppence and see cubism or abstract expressionism or, or futurism or, or whatever it was. But the whole suprematism. Art, art is meant for the
1: people logic is what is what Napster users used to justify
0: not paying me for the music I made. So that what you do is you go to Alinea, you eat your 17-course dinner, and then you run out the door. Ha 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 ha! That's compatible with Marxism. And that concludes Modernist
1: Cuisine. Entry 798.PR2303. Certificate number 24537 in the omnibus and the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era and the even more unlikely event that you are ever able to uh, afford or have the time to enjoy one of these insane molecular meals.
0: No, this is a post-scarcity world where your, oh. your replicators will just make for you uh, Oh sure, a, a hot dog on a burning stick.
1: I'm guessing that some futurelings are listening to this program going, wait a minute, I sound like this molecular cuisine maybe
0: some maybe molecular cuisine will make the eventual inheritors of the earth it's true what do you have to you know all these labs are like what can I inject into this foam next like what's the one ingredient that's gonna make it sentient yeah and then it comes roiling out of your saucepan and ah, takes over your lab
1: yeah you're gonna you're gonna uh, try and infuse some ketchup with carbon
0: dioxide and it's gonna come to life because regular laboratory scientists um, knew they shouldn't do this but your chefs, Your chefs were wondering if they could, and they never thought about if they should.
1: It's Frankenstein! (laughs) Um, You can find on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram all kinds of photos of Mindy making uh, fondue over on Ken's social media. I don't
0: think you actually can. It doesn't sound like it. But we do like fondue.
1: As much as I would like to post Mindy's pictures of fondue, I never get invited over to dinner at the nice parties. I'm just one of the hoi polloi. Um, You can find us at Omnibus Project, at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick. You can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Uh, I would especially encourage you to,
0: to um, argue with Ken about the pronunciation of, of Don Juan. I think a lot of people out there probably know way more about this kind of food culture than we do, and we're going to get some interesting responses. We have a lot of scientists and science-adjacent people listening to the show. And And you and I are just kind of mild enthusiasts of of this kind of cookery. We
1: are grateful to sequester most of them over on Facebook or uh, other social media sites. So they can't get into trouble. Yeah, they can yell at each other over there. Hell is other people. But they also celebrate one another, and uh, they celebrate... The entire catalog of Omnibus. So go look up Futurelings and go on there and ask. I think the first question you should ask is, why do they put an L in Soviet? And then everyone will welcome you and give you a, a hero's welcome. Hey, um, you can mail us things to PO Box five five seven four four Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five. Please do not mail us any foams, food foams, because I don't think it'll survive the trip.
0: No and, bacon and egg ice cream.
1: And you can support the show, and we encourage you to. This show was suggested by a patron. Aaron with Aaron, two A's. Uh, on patreon.com/slash omnibus project. And uh and that helps us produce the show and it gives you hours and hours of additional omnibus-based entertainment.
0: It helps us build our six hundred and fifty million dollar war chest, which we will need. To uh, collect dinosaurs, to, yeah, and unleash a new kind of laser-based cookery that will, yeah, postmodernist cuisine. It will probably, yeah. Where's the postmodernist Post- cuisine? Post know? postmodernist cuisine. Uh, that's actually probably a lot of these, you know, comfort foods that are actually funny. That's that's, that's kind of postmodernist cuisine. The thing right? is, postmodernist cuisine is definitely going to be compatible with Marxism. It's those. Ge- it's generic by definition. It's generic white boxes. That's postmodernist cuisine. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. And I rarely do this, but this seems like the correct entry to wish you many goods made out of cheese and cheese made out of goods. Mm-hmm. Cheese that's been melted and reformed into the shape of cheese. 30-hour cheeseburger cheese. If providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry. We move on